Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message. We are in the, uh, this is the 62nd Sunday we've spent on uh, the life of David, not consecutive Sundays. We're going to try to, Lord willing, finish uh, the life of David up through um, the end of this year. So uh, keep reading in the book of 2 Samuel, which is where we're at, 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there uh, with me. Uh, we've been looking at this remarkable uh, recovery in David's life. David, as we've seen, has led uh, what we would call a charmed life. Actually, the Bible says that uh, from a very young age, the Lord was with David. And that was the singular distinction in his life that set him out among uh, men, was the presence of the Lord, the abiding presence of the Lord in his life. But as we've seen, as the story unfolds in the 11th chapter of the book of Second Samuel, David is unaware of a storm that is brewing on the horizon of his life. And it culminates in an affair with a woman who is not his wife. Um, the murder of her husband, Uriah, which was arranged by David. The consequent cover-up. And then when we move into the 12th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, uh, the Lord sends to David a prophet by the name of Nathan. Nathan preaches a sermon. David confesses his sin. And that's where we begin to read today in the 12th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel in verse number uh, 13. David confessed, I've sinned against the Lord. The 11th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel ended by saying that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And so now David is in full repentance mode. And as the story unfolds from this point on out, even as I was reading this, and we read this last Sunday, we've read this two or three Sundays in a row this these verses 13 through 25 in Second Samuel chapter 12. Um, even as I read it, it's difficult to read it because the word dead is used so many times. I suppose that every parent at least occasionally thinks about what it would be like to lose a child. I know that every grandparent thinks about what it would be like to lose a grandchild. And I don't think that I would have the, we'll call this uh, centered on sovereignty, I don't think that I have the developed ability to center on God's sovereignty in light of such news. I don't know, and maybe you're with me on that, you don't know how you would react. Uh, We think about how we might react, how we should react, but none of us really knows um, how we would react when bad news comes. Uh, The Bible, as we've seen, is not squeamish about this. In fact, the Bible clearly 
lays the sickness of the child on God. The, the Bible says in uh, the middle of verse 15, the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. We may um, feel some compulsion to try to explain that away, to justify God's goodness, but nonetheless, this is what the text says. Again, so we are visiting, pausing in the life of David to take note of David's remarkable poise in light of such news. First thing he does is that he fasts, and then the news comes that the child on the seventh day that the child died, the child was dead. And then David gets up off the ground and he washes his face and anoints himself and changes his clothes. And that remarkable verse again in verse number 20, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. I dare say that God in his tender graciousness and mercy at times keeps these kind of horrible events from our lives because we do not have the capacity or the spiritual maturity to respond in a similar fashion. Because God will always test us to see if we believe what we actually say we believe. It's one thing to say that I believe in God, I believe in a good God, I believe that God has my best interests, uh, in his heart, but when it doesn't look like that, when the news comes that we didn't want to get, or how do you react when you pray, when you fast, and God says no? Well, most of us wouldn't do what David did. Most of us, many of us, a lot of Christians are at home on Sunday mornings, even this Sunday morning, because something didn't um, come out the way that they wanted. They They asked God for an answer, and God said, no, I'm not going to give you that answer. And people, instead of going into worship, the Lord in the house of the Lord, people stay at their own house. Now, it's a good thing to go home and get comfort. Somebody defined your home as the place where they have to let you in. (laughs) How many have had that feeling? Uh, Other doors may be closed. Your friends may say, no way, Jose. But when you go home, home is a place where your family lets you in. It's a good thing to go home, but David in this passage doesn't go home first. He goes to the house of the Lord to worship, and then he goes home. And that is uh, the proper order, by the way. Uh, A lot of people, their personal lives only revolve around their family. And as much as I as I can compliment that and say that's a, that's a good thing and a wonderful thing, if you only have your family in this life, you'll never be prepared for the bad news that inevitably come. How many know that inevitably one day you will pick up the phone, get a text, get a letter, 
somehow some news will be conveyed to you that will have uh, life-shattering circumstances to it. And even family in those situations don't really know how to comfort. How often have we uh, gone to a funeral or a wake and we go to the person who has suffered the loss of a, of a dear friend or family member and before we talk to them, we're thinking to ourselves, now what can I say? Can I say anything? I don't know what to say. David goes into the house of the Lord to be comforted by God and God alone and then he goes to his home. His thinking, of course, the servants take note of it. His thinking, as he responds to this time when God says no, and I, and I love this, these phrases by Robert uh, Barron. Sometimes we saw last week God says no because he wants a certain dilation of our heart or he wants an expansion of the soul. If everything just goes your way, there's no real opportunity for reflection. If everything goes your way, there's real, really no opportunity. We, we don't naturally seek out these kind of opportunities. There's no uh, opportunity to review your life. Where, where am I headed? What am I doing with my life? Where... What purpose do I have? Is there a greater purpose in my life? And sometimes God then interrupts our schedules, our well-planned and oiled uh, life, and, and he says, no, it's not going to go your way. And this produces within us this dilation of the heart, this opening up of the heart, the opening up of the soul to divine review. Uh, I, I want to show you from the word, the, from the lips of Jesus Himself. If you turn in your Bible to Mark, Mark chapter fourteen, this verse I believe from Jesus, and we've talked about it before. This is falling off the lips of Jesus as He's in prayer mode. He's in prayer mode in, in the worst case scenario of His life. He is facing his own death, his own crucifixion by, at the hands of others. And it's remarkable, Mark chapter 14 and verse 36, as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane before uh, the Roman soldiers come to haul him away. It's remarkable because this is really how we should pray in similar circumstances. The Bible says in Mark 14 and verse 34, 35, excuse me, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, say that with me, if it were possible, say it with me again, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. In other words, I don't want to undergo um, this terrible trial, this test. And he said, now here it is in verse 36, if you want to know how to pray in every circumstance, here it is. Here, here he gives us, if you'd allow me to use the word formula. And he said, Abba, Father 
All things are possible for you. That's number one. Secondly, he makes the request, the petition. Here's what he's asking for. Remove this cup from me. In other words, here's here's a cup of uh, grape juice, non-alcoholic wine. Uh, Jesus is using that uh, metaphor, I guess, or analogy that how many have eaten something when you were a kid that you didn't really want to eat and your parents made you eat it? You eat that spinach. It's good for you. And you're like, yeah, but it, uh, it tastes like roasted slime. It doesn't matter what it tastes like. I'm your parent. You're the child. The child does not tell the parent what to do. Eat the spinach. And what do you do? You're like, Uh, when I was a kid, we used to go to camp meeting in upstate New York, and it was called, the hotel was the White Sulphur Springs Hotel, and people went there in the 19th century because the water, which smelled like rotten eggs, was supposed to have healing, a healing effect on your body if you drank it and you bathed in it. It was wonderful water. It was great water, cold water, but to drink it, as a kid, I could remember I had to hold my nose because you couldn't drink it and smell it at the same time. You thought that you were drinking something foul. That's the, uh, that's the type that Jesus is using here. He's saying, God is, my, my father is presenting before me a cup of destruction and he wants me to drink it. I, and I, I just want to pass on that. And there's, there are some things which will come into your life where you don't get the chance to pass on. God will say, whether you want to or not, you're going to drink this. You're going to eat this. So Jesus is placing the petition, God, I know that all things are possible. That's how we start in prayer. You say, well, I don't know what God's will is. Jesus begins by praising and glorifying the expansive power of God Almighty. All things are possible. That's that's where we, we don't start with the circumstances. Uh, Alan Pickett this morning would like to be here in church. You think about that. Sometime you you can get up and go to church whenever you want. There may be a day when you want to come to church and your legs don't work. So we look at the circumstances of Alan Pickett, and and uh, the circumstances are: Wow, this doesn't look good. He's he's fought this for two years. The doctors are running out of ideas. Uh, there's nothing more that we can do for you. How do we pray for someone like Alan Pickett? Well, we, we start with the greatness of God. All things are possible. How many know all things are possible with God? All things are possible. That's, that's where we start. We don't start with uh, the skepticism of the circumstances. On the other hand, we don't paint a rosy picture. We just affirm and confess our faith that with God, who is almighty, 
all-powerful, all-knowing, all things are possible. And then we make the request, Lord, is it possible that you would allow, that you would not make him eat this or drink this cup? And look at it. You're going to need it somewhere in your life. Somewhere in your life, there's going to be a day when you wake up and you can't barely see the bottom looking up. And you're going to wonder, how do I place a petition before God? Well, you start with glorifying and praising the almighty power of God. You make your request. And then thirdly, look at it. Here it is. One verse, the answer to so many of the problems in our life. Mark 14 and verse 36. Yet, everyone said yet with me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Prayer is the lifting up of our desires to our Heavenly Father for things agreeable to His will. I don't know about you, but I um, I like to be healthy. None of us know. Uh, when we get a ache in our back or or a little something that is out of the ordinary and we say, well, I probably, and we, how many of you are like me? We ignore it for a while. We ignore the aches and pains as long as we can. We just say, well, if I can put up with that ache and pain for a month, it must not be the big C, so I'll just forget about it. Instead of taking two a leave, I'll take three a leave. Does anybody think like me? Some of us are just uh, virtual, we're, we're, we're uh, hypochondriacs, every little ache and pain we go to the doctor. But uh, we might go to the doctor sometime and the doctor, and we say, well, I just got a little ache in the stomach and they put you in an MRI and then the news comes, comes out um, and, and doctors are delivering bad news like that every day. The news comes out, look, you, you have cancer. Well, how, how bad is it? Where is it? Well, it's stage four, or it's metastasized through your whole body, or you've got three to six months. How, how many people have been given a prognosis of three to six months to live, and then three to four weeks later they're dead because the doctor just doesn't want to be that brutal with the, with the news? I like to be healthy. Can I serve God when I'm sick? Will I serve God when God says, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to let, I thank you for complimenting me that all things are possible with me. Thank you for that faithful affirmation of my power and my might. But your request that you've submitted, I'm going to say no. In the light of that, do I have the ability, do I have the spiritual maturity, do I have, has my soul been expanded enough, my heart dilated enough that I can say yet, Yet, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Barron goes on to say, he says, listen, finally, David's behavior reveals the attitude of detachment so praised by spiritual teachers up and down the centuries. Attached to God and God's demands, a person can be utterly detached from any finite good that would claim ultimacy, wealth, 
pleasure, power, or honor. I'll serve you, God, as long as I have a job. I'll serve you, God, as long as I have a house, and it's got to be a nice one. I'll serve you, God, as long as I've got what I want to eat. I'll serve you, God, and the list goes on and on and on, and those things become accretions in our life, like barnacles on the bottom of a sailing ship. They build up, they build up over the years, and then God says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to, Alan, I'm going to get your attention. I'm going to get your attention. You, you heard about the old farmer who had a stubborn mule, and everywhere he went, went he took this like chunk of two-by-four with him, and one day another farmer asked him, they said, everywhere you go with that mule, you got that two-by-four in your hand. What, why, why, are you, why are you carrying that two-by-four around? He said, oh, that's just to get this mule's attention. Every so often God whacks us on the head to get our attention, and we're like, what? What do I do? I didn't do nothing. And then we go, uh, at least me, then, then we go into uh, pout mode or whining mode because God has removed something from our life because we've gotten too attached to it. Listen to Baron again. At rest in God... A soul can let go of all else, convinced that peace will follow, whether living a long life or a short one, whether wealthy or poor, whether admired or despised, going in calmly to worship the God who has just taken the life of his child. David exemplifies this spiritual stance. I might venture, I might become even more vile this morning and say that if that happened to any one of us in this room, we might not show up in church for a long time, if ever. David is a sinner, yes. David has sinned before the Lord. That's his confession. God has moved and taken the, 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 the life of the child, yes. But David, what remains... David has, centered on sovereignty, finds himself in the presence of the Lord, saying, not my will, but thy will be done. Just one more thing this morning. Look, look with me. This is a, I think this is a, a good verse that might help us to understand these times when it appears to us that God is saying no. Look, anybody can serve God when every time you... you Pray to God, he gives you what you want. That, that's not a big deal. If God is just a, a vending machine, and I go and put my money in and I get what I want, well, of course, yes. I would love God too, but when God says no, or when it appears that God will say no, how do we react? How do we respond? Look in Psalm 69. This is a, a Psalm of David, and it's one of those desperate cries. It says in verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. 
I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. He says in verse 9, this is a verse that Jesus quotes in his ministry, for zeal for your house has consumed me. When I wept, verse 10, here's David, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. You know, that's pretty bad when the town drunk makes a song out of you. But look in verse 13. It begins with that pivotal word, Psalm 69, 13. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. Look at the next phrase, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. At an acceptable time, O God, answer me. When I was about eight years old, my father gave me uh, what I would loosely describe as a a Bowie knife. Now, it wasn't one of those Bowie knives that was had like a 15-inch blade. But he bought it at Copkind's hardware store in, in North Brantford. It came with a little leather scabbard. And the handle of the knife, it was a straight blade. It was uh, The blade was probably about four inches long. And the handle of the knife was wrapped in leather piping smoothly polished and my father gave that to me now i don't i don't think that um in fact with andrew and andon i hit all the knives they you know they come back from kingdom city down there and uh you know coming back from the lake and they'd stop at that what's that place ozark 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 land i was going to call it ozark mountain land i don't know if any of you have stopped there but they have, if you want taffy, you know, that's where you stop on the way back to St. Louis. But they always, they developed this tradition of stopping there. I think Andrew did, not so much Andon, of buying a knife. And they would bring that back home and the, Andrew would show me the knife and I would be like, no way, Jose, you could poke your eye out and pierce your liver and no, you're not, I don't know who Grandma bought that for you. Now this figures. Your mother let you have this? That's not right. And so I would somehow squirrel away those knives. My father, when I was eight, gave me a knife. And when I think about it, I can't say that my father didn't know what he was doing. It's possible he didn't know what he was doing. But I look back, and apparently 
he made a decision that said, young Alan is mature and responsible enough to climb all over the hills, all over in the back of our yard, up and down with this little scabbard, you know, it had a thing you could put on your belt, and he'll be okay with it. I think back about how many times I could have killed myself with that knife. Yet I didn't. We lived on Nonchill Road, and it was called Nonchill Road because we sat right by the hill that they had cut a notch in so you could, you could get a road through there. I built a fort up on the top of that hill right over the sheer precipice that looked down into that street. And I can't tell you how many times, hundreds of times, I would stand on that sheer precipice with my little hunting knife looking straight down into death and disaster. So sometimes a parent makes the decision, you're not ready for that. How many have done that? You say, you're not ready for this. There's a day that that will come when you'll be ready for this, but you're not ready. How many know none of us are ready for the 15 inch Bowie knife that, you know, just is like a mini sword? David prays. I want you to answer me. Look, I'm in trouble, God. And I want you to answer me. But here, here's the caveat. Even as Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will. God says to David, you're not ready for the answer yet. You see that? You're not ready. You're, you're not prepared. You're not Spiritually mature enough to handle uh, the answer that I have read, prepared for you. Listen to this and, and then I'll quit. Prayers are commonly divided into two classes, those which are conformable to the will of God and those which are not. But the psalmist in this passage was, would suggest a third class belonging to neither the one or the other. He says there may be prayers which are not conformable to the will of God today but which will be tomorrow. Answer my prayer, Lord, and here at an acceptable time. Say, well, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and it seems as though God is saying no. God may just be saying to you, look, you're not, you're, you're not old enough. You're not mature enough to handle the consequences if I answer this prayer the way you want me to answer. Sometimes God says yes. How many believe that? Sometimes God says no. How many believe that? Sometimes God says, wait. And we'd almost almost rather have a no from God so we could go on with an, a new request, fashioning a new request than for God to say to us, wait. God says no to David. The child dies. We have a wonderful occasion this morning to celebrate new life in Easton Joseph. But in David's case, the child dies. You say, what a morbid story 
But God always has the last word. David, in this remarkable dilation of his heart, takes the comfort he's received from God and goes home to Bathsheba and consoles her, the Bible says. And a child is born in the midst of that consolation, in the midst of that grief and weeping together, child is the result, and the child is named Solomon. But the Lord says to Nathan, you go back to David and tell him to name the child Jedidiah. Jedidiah means of the Lord, a gift that has been given by God. Actually, it has, in the original language, it has the Hebrew word for hand, and it gives the idea that God is hand in hand with this child. Solomon, of course, is the one who will build God's house. The Lord loved Solomon. God never extracts from our life. I believe this to be the case. If this is not the case, then 63 years of living have taught me nothing. I believe that God never extracts anything from our life or subtracts from our life without making up for it even more. If the child dies, then God has another child to give. For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.covcomchu.org. That's covcomchu.org. Or give us a call at 314-869-4367. At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.